1: Behind the Knife, The Surgery Podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. Hi, uh, welcome to the vascular surgery edition of Behind the Knife. My name is Nick Osborne and I'm a uh, vascular surgery attending at the University of Michigan. Myself and the remainder of the two co-hosts sitting next to me here comprise the vascular surgery team for the Behind the Knife. And our uh, aim for these podcasts is to bring you a mix of interesting vascular cases, topic reviews, literature reviews, and a lot of uh, uh, opinions about uh, vascular surgery to a broad surgical audience Um, We're going to try and provide you with some resources uh, to really not only be aimed at the medical students and residents, but also all the way up through faculty. And we'll discuss kind of not only indication of procedures, complex surgical decision-making and techniques, and also some vascular surgery controversies as time goes on over the next year. Um, We hope that these are educational and that you find them interesting and rewarding. Today, we're going to talk about carotid artery stenosis and some of the uh, more advanced techniques for treating uh, carotid artery disease. So before we start, though, I'd like to give a chance to introduce the rest of the team. Like I said, my name is Nick Osborne. I'm a associate uh, professor of surgery at the University of Michigan. and I work at the University of Michigan and at the VA hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I'm a generalist. I do pretty much all vascular surgery. Uh, and I'm surrounded here by two uh, fantastic uh, senior residents, um, uh, Dr. Craig Brown and Dr. Frank Davis, Craig, why don't you uh,
2: go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Craig. Uh, like Nick said, I'm one of the uh, PGY-6s in general surgery here at the University of Michigan. Uh, I'm absolutely thrilled, as are these other two, to just uh, be a part of the team. And uh, we really hope that um, that there's something for kind of
0: everybody uh, in terms of the podcast. So uh, thanks for listening. Yeah, and then my name is Frank Davis. I'm one of the chief integrated vascular surgery residents here at Michigan. Um, really appreciate everybody's time listening to our podcast. We hope you gain a lot, um, both from clinical content as well as uh, case reviews as well as literature reviews. So we appreciate you listening and hope you enjoy. All right. So uh,
1: we're done with the introduction. So today we're going to talk about cerebrovascular disease and in particular carotid artery stenosis and some of the advancements in the treatment of carotid artery stenosis. So um, let's get started with a quick case. And so Frank,
0: go ahead and take it away. Perfect. Yeah, thanks. So more of our kind of purpose for this topic is we're going to use this case as example as a jumping off point for carotid artery disease. So, um, Craig, so let's talk about this patient today. So the patient's a 62 year old male who's coming into clinic. They have a history of hypertension, obstructive sleep apnea prior uh, laryngeal cancer who underwent radiation remotely like five years ago. Um, follow-up for his oncologist, they did a CT scan and was negative for cancer. However, they showed concern for a right ICA stenosis. So thereby, they send them over to Vascular Surgery Clinic and ask what to do about it. So Craig, how would you approach that scenario?
2: Thanks, Craig. So, uh, you know, I would start similar to any patient evaluation. Uh, you want to start with history and physical. So I think in this patient, um, without getting into the weeds of the history, um, really what we're trying to define is are they symptomatic or asymptomatic? And that comes down to really a history of kind of um, TIA, previous stroke, or symptoms that could be attributed to a carotid lesion. So um, I would ask that patient detailed neurologic questions, um, trying to steer clear things that are kind of ambiguous, like, for instance, lightheadedness or dizziness, those kind of symptoms that tend not to be attributed to uh, unilateral uh, disease. Uh, And then the classic kind of board thing that comes up is amaurosis fugax or this kind of curtain dropping over your vision on one side, um, which tends to be uh, attributed to carotid artery stenosis. Um, Those are the features that really determine whether a patient's symptomatic or asymptomatic. Um, The timing is a little bit up for debate, but really it's limited to uh, six months, I think is the general consensus. So if a patient has had any of these symptoms in the last six months, we consider them symptomatic. If not, they're asymptomatic. Other things that I want to know about are their cardiovascular risk factors. Uh, do they have coronary artery disease, hypertension, hyperlipidemia? In this case, uh, you mentioned the history of radiation. That's going to be important for us later. And then what's their medications look like? Are they on, uh, are they smoking? Do they, uh, take antiplatelet therapy, both, uh, aspirin or Plavix or any of these other medications? Uh, does their, uh, statin medication regimen look like? Ideally they're on a high dose statin, like a Torvastatin or Rosuvastatin, um, And then uh, after getting a detailed history, I would then talk to them about what imaging they've had. In this case, he's already had a CT of his neck that kind of identified this lesion. But um, basically, every patient who uh, has carotid disease is going to need a diagnostic vascular ultrasound of the neck. And uh, most
0: patients were going to consider a CTA of the head and neck, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah, no, that that sounds great. So. Um, For this specific patient, when he was referred to clinic, he had a a diagnostic vascular ultrasound like he commented on that looked at the peak systolic velocity and end diastolic velocity. For this patient, he had a peak systolic velocity of greater than 250 centimeters per second and an end diastolic velocity of 101 uh, centimeters per second in that right internal carotid artery. Um, So for the students and junior residents listening on this call, I guess the diagnostic vascular ultrasounds are very important and they help us grade how severe the stenosis is. Um, typically, they're looking for a stenosis that's greater than 70%. Um, so for this patient with their end diastolic velocity of greater than 100 centimeters per second, that is a finding from an ultrasound that's associated with that greater than 70% stenosis. Um, in addition, this patient came in um, and their diagnostic vascular ultrasound showed that the carotid artery on the opposite side, so that left side, as well as the bilateral vertebral arteries were open and antigrade flow. So that's also very important to kind of better understand the cerebrovascular flow patterns within the brain. Um, Last but not least, they also had a CTA head and neck that was, comes in, as Craig mentioned before, and that demonstrated a greater than 80% stenosis of that right internal carotid, as well as plaque extending all the way up to the C2 level. Um, In addition, the plaque had areas of ulceration, as well as uh, lipid deposition.
2: Yeah. So uh, Nick, talk us through, you know, kind of what you make of this imaging and then Specifically, what would you advise for this patient in terms of medical management or surgical intervention uh, for a patient in this scenario who has 80% stenosis of their internal carotid? All right. So
1: uh, you know, I think, first of all, when we're talking about carotid artery stenosis, the big kind of divining thing we need to figure out first is are they symptomatic or not symptomatic? You kind of mentioned that already. Um, And really, we consider people symptomatic within the last six months, not prior to that. Um, If they've had a stroke, but it's more than six months out they'd be asymptomatic. So really are they symptomatic within the last six months or asymptomatic is the first thing. And then once we've done that, you got to really think about then you know, what is the best thing to do for these patients? Um, luckily in carotid artery stenosis, we've had a million trials to really look at this and ask a question of how should we manage patients with carotid artery stenosis? Um, for symptomatic patients, it's a pretty easy discussion to have. And I think the medical students and residents here are probably pretty scarred from getting pimped in the OR and in the clinic by vascular surgeons about uh, the trials for carotid artery stenosis. But uh, for those of you who haven't, the one to remember for symptomatic carotid disease is the NASCET trial. So the North American symptomatic carotid artery uh, or carotid Endarterectomy arterectomy trial. This is a trial that was done back in the 1980s. Uh, at the time it randomized about 650 patients who had symptomatic carotid artery stenosis which would grade out nowadays based on our current imaging to about 70% stenosis or not to medical therapy, which in the 1980s was really basically just aspirin therapy, uh, versus surgical therapy, which was carotid endarterectomy. The trial, um, was a landmark trial because it really clearly demonstrated that patients who had surgery to prevent a second stroke event, uh, had a decreased risk of stroke from about 26% in the medical patient population to 9% in the surgically treated population. This was very clearly good evidence to show that, you know, chronic endarterectomy is the right thing to do for patients with symptomatic disease. The ECST trial, which is the European carotid surgery trial, similarly showed uh, with a similar patient population, slightly different criteria uh, that, they again could uh, show a decreased risk of, of stroke. And at three years in that population, the risk was reduced from about 21% to about 7%. And so those two trials are the big ones to remember for uh, your pimping sessions. Um, now, when we shift to asymptomatic carotid artery disease, that's a little, bit, um, it's a little bit less clear what to do. I think it's harder to talk to a patient about the theoretical risk of having a stroke if they've never had one. And we're trying to decrease that primary risk of having a stroke. Um, the trial that you really want to remember if you're going to be asked questions again is the ACAST trial. Um, this is a, uh, there are several other ones, but that really is the big one. ACAST trial randomized over 1,600 patients with asymptomatic carotid artery stenosis of greater than 60%. And they again randomized to medical therapy, which was aspirin really, to uh, versus endarterectomy. And at five years in that trial, they showed that um, medical therapy had a risk of stroke of about 11% and the carotid and group had a risk of about 5%. So you again saw um, a significant decrease in the risk of stroke in patients who were treated with surgery over medical therapy for carotid artery stenosis. So, you know, these two groups, asymptomatic and symptomatic, both showed benefits of carotid artery um, revascularization. So we're really talking about carotid endarterectomy versus medical therapy, which was really aspirin at the time. The big thing to think about is that since this has all been done, medical therapy has really changed. I mean, this was the 1980s. A lot has changed since the eighties. Stroke risk has actually gone down significantly in the United States. And really nowadays, modern medical therapy is not just aspirin. It's, You know, you've mentioned it. It's statin, high dose statin or high potency statin. So atorvastatin or rosuvastatin. It's really aggressive blood pressure management, right? So you want to have them on a good antihypertensive regimen. It's maximizing their hemoglobin A1Cs to make sure that they've got good diabetes control, smoking cessation, exercise therapy, and then, you know, all those things together, uh, is that now equivalent to surgery or, or better than surgery, or is surgery still the right thing to do in patients who have asymptomatic carotid disease? And that's a question that we really don't know the answer to. I think it's pretty obvious. Most people aren't going to question whether we should do that for patients who've had a stroke, and we're preventing another one, but in the patients who've never had one again, is it still the right thing to do when we have all these um, all these things in our armamentarium now? Um, and so... Now we have a trial going on across the United States called the CREST-2 trial, which has been going on now for several years um, and has been slowly accruing patients in the COVID era, but hopefully we'll continue to kind of rapidly uh, in- increase its enrollment uh, as, as we kind of move forward to get to accrual. Uh, and that question is really going to be answered as to whether or not medical therapy uh, versus surgical revascularization or stenting is really the, uh, the right thing to do. And in this trial, there's really three arms. There's a medical arm there's a medical plus endarterectomy arm, and then there's a medical plus stenting arm. And we're going to compare the three groups. And I think hopefully in the next several years here, we'll have an answer as to whether
0: patients who are asymptomatic benefit from revascularization or not. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic summary of all kinds of trials as well as, you know, their date as as how medical therapy has advanced and how that interacts with the trials. Um, Yeah, yeah, for those individuals with high-grade asymptomatic carotid stenosis, Um, operative intervention, at least in the trials that have published shows that there is a risk reduction, um, in terms of stroke. Um, so for our current patient example, there's multitude of different options for this patient in terms of how to approach that patient from a surgical standpoint. So Craig, why don't you talk about what are the different options from a surgical standpoint to treat high grade carotid artery stenosis?
2: Yeah, I, knew, you know, I think up until a couple of years ago, we were really left with uh, open carotid endoderectomy or uh, transfemoral carotid stenting. And um, we're going to talk a little bit today about transcarotid artery revascularization, or TCAR, uh, which has kind of taken vascular surgery by storm a bit uh, and has added another uh, kind of technique within our armamentarium to treat these patients. So this uh, patient has a couple important anatomic and historical uh, considerations that uh, may steer us one way or the other. And specifically, that's his lesion was not visible. At least the distal most aspect wasn't visible on ultrasound. And our CTA showed that it was at C2, so pretty high. Uh, and then the other thing is that he had radiation to his neck. And so that's a big uh, um, historical finding that I think uh, has dramatic implications for his hair.
0: Yeah, good, great point. I think, why, why don't we take each of those anatomical criteria and risk factors like one by one, because I think those are important learning points from a surgical standpoint. So First and foremost, high grade lesions in carotid disease. Craig, what are the techniques from an operative standpoint that you can use to approach high grade lesions safely to prevent stroke, to prevent neurological injury?
2: Yeah, so um, if we're talking about high lesions in the neck, uh, yeah, you know, I think that um, really we have a couple of uh, techniques, maneuvers, positioning things that are really particularly helpful. Uh, I know that uh, for the residents listening, and probably for the attendings too, this is a favorite to uh, really pimp. Uh, uh, surgical residents in the operating room, what to do if you get to that point. Uh, you know, I think we're, uh, looking at, um, things like nasotracheal intubation, um, which, you know, kind of allows us to get the jaw out of the way uh, a little bit along that same line is subluxation of the jaw. Uh, if you find that you have, uh, still not enough length, you can divide the posterior belly of the digastric, And then, you know, worst case scenario, you can, uh, resect the styloid process. Um, and then, um, the other one that we haven't mentioned is using a retrojugular approach as well. Um, and these allow us to get pretty high in the neck, actually. So it turns out that most lesions can be accessed this way. Um, but, you know, they're, 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 those come with risks. And so, you know, each of those kind of maneuvers have to be um, implemented
0: in a stepwise fashion. Yeah, no, and I agree. I think a systematic approach to how to get to high grade lesions safely is very important to understand at all times, but especially at those times when you get into the operation and you might counter a high lesion that wasn't expected, or you thought it's actually higher than you saw in the imaging. So that's important to kind of know those steps. Um, and this patient also has a second kind of high risk factor, and that's his prior neck radiation. So, so Craig, how does that impact your operative decision making, and what is the type of operation you offer to him?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I I think about it. It's it, it's not all that different from other surgeries that we
0: do in radiated
2: fields. I think everybody is. Uh, had to operate in that uh, scenario at some point. And really, it just makes everything painful. So um, in this case, you know, anything that we can do to avoid dissecting in that radiated field would be ideal. Um, and that, you know, we will talk about kind of surgical techniques to get around that. Um, but it really applies to basically anybody who's had neck radiation or uh, other even surgical procedures where there's scarring around that area like tracheostomy or thyroidectomy and
0: other um, procedures like that that might
2: make you think twice about
0: dissecting in a reoperative field. Yeah. So, so in those cases where you have to dissect in that reoperative field, some of the other carotid procedures beyond carotid, carotid stentine might be advantageous. So, uh, Nick, I know there's been some multitude of studies talking about carotid stentine versus carotid endarterectomy. So, so where's the data at in terms of that right now? And why don't you walk us through that? Yeah. So, you know, I think, um, just like the fact that there've been a million studies comparing
1: carotid endarterectomy to medical therapy. There've been a lot of trials comparing stenting to carotid endarterectomy. The one I'm going to focus on for our brevity's sake really is the CREST trial and the CREST trial enrolled almost 2,500 patients um, and compared carotid endarterectomy to carotid stenting and specifically transfemoral carotid stenting. And it was a mix of both symptomatic and asymptomatic patients in this trial. Um, But Uh, the big take-homes from this is that they used a composite endpoint in this trial to look at about two and a half years out from from intervention. uh, And they found that the composite endpoint of either stroke, uh, myocardial injury, or death was not inferior in the group undergoing carotid stenting to the patients undergoing carotid endarterectomy, meaning that there was no significant, statistically significant difference in the composite outcome between the two groups. Now, importantly, there were some differences when you look at the individual outcomes and stenting still was associated with a significantly higher risk of um, stroke compared to the patients undergoing carotid endarterectomy. And similarly, the patient undergoing carotid endarterectomy had a higher risk of myocardial injury compared to the patients undergoing stenting. And that's kind of why the composite, when you smoosh them all together um, was non-inferior between the two but when you look at them individually there were there were nuances and differences that you could see and that's led to a lot of argument about what the right thing to do is for patients with uh, carotid artery stenosis as to whether
0: it's stenting or endarterectomy. Yeah no good point you've touched on now a multitude of different trials that are high yield takeaway trials that are as important to understand in carotid artery disease and I know our global or national society the Society of Vascular Surgery has actually published guidelines kind of incorporating all these trials together in one overall guideline. So what has that SBS or the Society of Vascular Surgery published on the guidelines for carotid disease? Yeah. So um, you know, I think the guidelines are actually pretty straightforward for carotid artery disease
1: and um, the SBS guidelines are class one recommendation level a evidence. So this is good, at, you know, this is strong evidence for asymptomatic patients with a stenosis greater than 60%. Um, and a life expectancy of more than three years, so the three to five-year range life expectancy, that they're, uh, these patients should be considered for a carotid endarterectomy. Um, so asymptomatic patients greater than 60% stenosis with a good life expectancy, consider a carotid endarterectomy. They, they kind of hedged and didn't say um, whether or not stenting um, is indicated. They said there isn't sufficient data. Uh, and I think that reflects the fact that these trials really... Um, weren't powered well enough in individual um, outcomes to be able to really say that for sure. Yeah,
0: no, I agree with that. Um, And then we've talked about carotid endorectomy, the trials behind that, the carotid stenting, especially transfemoral carotid stenting. But I think we're also in this podcast, we wanna highlight a new procedure that's kind of come into vascular surgery in the past probably five to 10 years, and and that's TCAR. So why don't we talk a little bit about the data behind TCAR and why so many vascular surgeons across the nation are excited about this procedure.
1: Yeah. Um, so TCAR stands for trans carotid artery revascularization, and it, it basically think about it as a way to place a carotid stent from a neck incision. And, you know, the, the real kind of subtle or not subtle, but the, the the big difference between this and a transfemoral stent is the fact that instead of using a distal embolic protection device to prevent embolism to the brain and stroke, what this technique uses is a, a pr- principle called flow reversal. So you're, instead of putting a little umbrella in to catch any clot or atheroma that breaks off during the procedure, instead what you're doing is you're actually reversing blood flow away from the brain during the time where you're putting in a balloon and angioplasty, or when you're putting in a stent to Prevent embolization to the brain during that point. It's actually going to go the wrong way, so it's going away from the brain through a circuit, uh, which is connecting the carotid artery up to the femoral vein. And this um, technique was actually first developed by one of my former partners here, Dr. Criado. And um, at the time when he did it, he initially was hooking up a just two big sheaths in the neck, one in the carotid artery and one in the jugular vein, with some tubing in between. And You'd clamp the carotid artery and you're just taking advantage of the physics principles that, you know, blood is going to, or, you know, it's going to follow the path of least resistance. And so all of a sudden, now that you've clamped the carotid artery, a vein is lower resistance than the, even the brain is. And so you're going to have blood naturally drain from the brain away from the, the lesion toward the vein that you're hooked up to. And so during that point, you really are at minimal risk of embolization. The risk of embolization in the procedure really comes from the fact that you're going to stop flow reversal at the points where you inject dye to take pictures, Uh, and so that's really when you introduce a risk of embolization. There was a trial that was performed, or really a a single arm study that was performed in 2015 called the Roadster trial. The Roadster one, and there was a Roadster two trial. Um, These trials really showed uh, really remarkable evidence that there was a dramatic decrease in the risk of stroke in. Um, carotid stenting from a transcarotid approach. And the risk in the study was really 0.6% of ipsilateral stroke. Uh, this is huge because remember that the CREST trial showed a, a significantly higher risk of, of stroke as high as almost 4% in that trial. So this is a huge difference compared to what it was before. And it really, I think, generated a ton of excitement around the idea of uh, carotid stenting with a lower risk of carotid, of uh, embolization from the carotid arteries.
0: Yeah, no, I remember when I read the first Roadster trial come out and I was super excited about the data and what it showed, um, for the history, for that kind of the progression of carotid artery disease, but, uh, but as with any new procedure, and as it comes out, there's always the FDA and FDA approval limit that procedure to certain patient clientele, as well as from an anatomical, there is constraints on what patients are applicable for that. So Craig, why don't you talk about TCAR and kind of the, some of those restrictions for patient selection?
2: Yeah. So thanks, Frank. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, there's FDA approval and there's FDA kind of off-label use, but um, strictly speaking, TCAR is approved for asymptomatic carotid stenosis greater than 80% um, and uh, symptomatic carotid stenosis greater than 50% in patients who are at high surgical risk based on anatomic or medical risk factors. Um, The anatomic constraints are important to understand, though, and and really they kind of um, are based on getting access to the the carotid. And then whether or not you can actually place the necessary sheaths and things like that. Um, So what it comes down to is you must have a common carotid artery diameter of six millimeters or greater. Your vessel diameter at the target lesion can't be outside of the window of four to nine millimeters. And then the lesion um, or sorry, the carotid bifurcation has to be five centimeters above the clavicle. Really, you have to have kind of an area to run up to to be able to place your sheath. And then like a a transfemoral stenting, the patient has to be able to tolerate dual antiplatelet therapy postoperatively.
0: Yeah, no, and I agree. Those are all the kind of tried and true indications for TCAR. So now that we've discussed carotid endorectomy, transfemoral stenting, as well as TCAR, for the patient example, we're kind of carrying through this, the gentleman with asymptomatic, high grade, high lesion, prior radiation. Craig, what what would you kind of advise that patient to pursue from an operative standpoint.
2: Yeah. You know, I think Nick talked about the the nuances of asymptomatic disease and kind of the discussion around risk of stroke perioperatively and postoperatively. uh, And I don't think the answer is super clear, but in this patient, uh, he certainly uh, seems to be a good candidate for a T-car just given his
0: history of high
2: lesion and then the the neck radiation.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that's kind of the best surgical option if they decide to pursue on with a surgical intervention. So given kind of the relative, the new onset of TCAR coming into vascular surgery, I think it's also important for this podcast to talk about some of the specifics for the procedure. Um, so Nick, why don't you go through how you approach a TCAR, technical specifics, as well as other aspects you want to share? Yeah. So,
1: um, you know, I think the car procedure itself is actually a pretty straightforward procedure um, and has some subtle differences compared to other procedures that we've done in the neck as vascular surgeons that we got to think about it really involves number one that you're exposing the common carotid artery so um i like to do these procedures under um under a uh, uh, local anesthetic or a regional anesthetic with a block it's pretty simple. You can do that with just a, a quick injection of bupivacaine in the sub space under ultrasound with the patient in the OR uh, and infiltrating in that space. Typically will give a pretty good block in that region and they can tolerate the procedure with just a little bit of touching up at the time of procedure when they, if they have some pain. Uh, other people like to do it under general anesthesia. I think there's really um, minimal differences in the risk between those, uh, but uh, I think it's somewhat preference, but you know, I think uh, just like with carotid anorectomy, just do what you like to do. Um, now, once you've got them ready for the procedure and they're they're all set, you're going to mark where the bifurcation is, make sure again that they've got those five centimeters so you can place a sheath in. and you're going to make an incision in the kind of right above the clavicle um, to expose it. I like to do transverse incisions. Um, I think that personally I'm biased. I was taught that way by uh, Dr. Criato when he started doing this, and I think it, it leads to a little bit um, nicer exposure. I also think that anecdotally to me, it, it's a little bit lower risk of bleeding. Um, the keys when you're doing a transverse incision is that you want to make subplatysmal flaps so that you can really um, allow and maximize your exposure. And once you do that, you're going to uh, dissect down, you're going to just separate the heads of the sternocleidomastoid muscle. And uh, once you've done that, find the jugular vein, uh, move the jugular vein out of the way and get to the carotid artery big thing here is you don't want to overexpose the carotid artery. Most surgeons when they're operating, uh, you know, they want to prevent complications in the future. So, um, you know, getting out more is always better in a lot of people's minds. That is not the case with TCAR. You want to try and minimize your exposure of the carotid artery, because as you mobilize more of the carotid artery, all you're doing is creating a wet noodle and you're trying to put a sheath, this big sheath inside the carotid artery, and you're pushing against this mobile Carotid artery, it's going to do terribly. So don't do that. So I like to just expose just a couple centimeters of carotid artery at most. You're going to put a purse string suture in it. At the time when you're doing all this, you're going to heparinize the patient and you're going to get ready for doing the procedure. You also have to have femoral vein access. So using ultrasound, you'll get femoral vein access and put an eight French sheath into the femoral vein. Once you've gotten that all ready and the patient's heparinized, I typically also, at the time of heparin, give glycopyrrolate to decrease the risk of bradycardia with their procedure. Bradycardia is obviously something you want to avoid. Um, a lot of people always talk about atropine when they were doing uh, transfemoral stenting. I think br- the bradycardia that you get can be almost completely avoided if you use glycopyrrolate. And 0.2 glycopyrrolate or 0.4 glycopyrrolate works like, like a charm on almost every patient. So do that ahead of time. Then you're going to cannulate the carotid artery once your ACT is over 250. You're going to use the micropuncture that comes with in the kit um, to expose or to, to uh, access the carotid artery. And initially that micropuncture is going to be used so that you can make sure that you're in the right space, that in the carotid artery, you haven't created dissection or anything like that. And you're also going to take a quick angiogram to make sure that you see the bifurcation, you know where you are, that you're not going to instrument the lesion before you've achieved flow reversal. So once you do that, you try and either cannulate the external carotid artery so that you can put a stiffer wire into the external and put your big sheath in, or you can do what's called the stop short technique, where we instead just put the stiffer wire up to the level of the bifurcation, but not above it. That works really well if you have a lesion that's a little bit lower in the bulb or in the really proximal ICA and you're afraid of really instrumenting near that point. And so you can mark it and you can avoid instrumenting to that point and put your sheath in if you have enough run up to it uh, and avoid that. Once you've done that, then at that point, you have two big sheaths in, one in the femoral vein, one in the carotid artery. You're connecting with two sets of tubing to the now, with one set of too excuse me that's got a filter in the middle of it and that now has achieved what we call kind of passive flow reversal it's going to have some mixing of blood um draining into the femoral vein as opposed to just going integrate up into the carotid artery as well you achieve flow flow reversal full flow reversal once you clamp the common carotid artery you can either put a clamp on it like a, a peripheral a bake clamp or you can also just use a rommel tourniquet on it and that works really well as well once you've done that now the time is on so uh, key steps there. Once you've done that, I like to preload my balloon. So I pick my balloon ahead of time that I'm going to use. I'll preload that balloon with the wire and uh, the wire comes in the kit. It's a short wire and the kit usually you're using monorail balloons. So it's nice, everything short platform that you're putting in and you're going to cannulate the internal carotid artery. You're going to balloon angioplasty, the carotid artery pretty, uh, pretty aggressively. And then you're going to quickly put your stent in. Once you put your stent in, you want to make sure that you really Give some time for washout. Um, you want to give at least two, three minutes to allow everything to wash out and not uh, embolize because you're going to take your last couple of pictures to confirm that you have a good result with an angiogram and, and you don't want to stop flow reversal in that time period. So you let it wash out. You're going to take your pictures. And at that point, hopefully you're done. Um, and, and I think it's an elegant procedure. It works really well. You can usually achieve flow reversal times of less than 10 minutes once you get used to doing this procedure. Um, and uh, patients really tolerate it pretty well.
0: Yeah. No, thanks. Thanks for that detailed description. I think those, those technical nuances are very important for people starting out in TCAR, whether it's residents or new faculty trying to learn that procedure and approaching it in a systematic fashion is really important. Um, so, I mean, that for our patient example we talked about today, I think TCAR would be the optimal procedure for them. There's a bunch of different things we tried to walk through to talk about the different variations of the different procedures overall as well as the data behind that. But in order for like To conclude this podcast, Craig, why don't you talk about kind of the key takeaways that for our listeners, we really want you to walk away from this podcast, have a good understanding of some key principles for carotid disease, as well as new procedures. Yeah, you know, I think uh,
2: carotid disease is complicated, Um, but we hopefully gave you guys kind of a framework to work through it. Uh, I think the you know, the progression is not unlike other patient evaluations. So you're really looking for history, physical, and that's symptomatic or asymptomatic disease. And then we're going to talk uh, about imaging. We we talked about getting a diagnostic vascular ultrasound. In this case, we need a CTA of the neck to really determine how high the lesion went, whether they're a candidate for a T-car. And then we talked about different management options. It it really comes down to optimal medical management. I think the critical point here is to not forget to manage these patients who likely have uh, system-wide cardiovascular disease. So they really need to be optimized from a medical perspective, and that includes high intensity statin smoking cessation, antihypertensive hypertensive therapy, uh, diabetes management, walking uh, or exercise programs and things like that. And then operative techniques, uh, you know, are carotid endarterectomy versus t car versus transfemoral stenting. And the when to do which is really dependent on uh, your comfortability as a surgeon and anatomic criteria. And uh, hopefully we gave you guys a, a bit of a taste of kind of how we think about that here at the University of Michigan. So um, with that, you know, we'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank uh, Nick and Frank for joining me today and uh, dominate the day. Dominate the day. Thank you.
1: Until next time, dominate the day.